You're listening to the Harborside Church Podcast. To connect with us online, go to www.harborside.org. We hope you enjoy this message. A couple weeks ago, we had our very own John Buckley bring a fantastic word on joy and purpose. Last week, we had a vet speak on joy and anxiety. I hope you enjoyed that. That's available on the podcast. It was a longer presentation. She's a, a, a psych psychologist with 18 years experience and she sort of shared half an hour what is anxiety then half an hour what does God's word have to say I got a lot out of that I found that incredibly helpful I hope some of you did as well so it's been a few weeks since I've been up here so it's almost long enough I've kind of forgotten how to preach so we'll see how we go We'll, we'll just see if that's true or not maybe you can let me know during the week we are in our final week in our series as we've been looking at a little letter in the New Testament called Philippians, only four chapters. We've taken about four weeks, and we've called it Finding Joy Where You Are. We looked at lots of different topics, haven't we? Joy in humility, joy in anxiety, we looked at that last week. Joy through the storms of life, through suffering. Joy in purpose, joy in maturity. And today, I think it's a bit of a culmination of the whole series. We're looking at joy in contentment. Contentment. I don't know if you know that joy and contentment are linked. They're inextricably linked. Joy is the emotional response to contentment. Now, what do we mean by contentment? We mean satisfaction, right? Fulfillment. That feeling uh, on Christmas lunch, just before you get to the, I've eaten way too much, I need to kind of lie down. That sense of, you've had your fill. You've had enough, maybe enjoying a good glass of bread, or maybe it's a good coffee. People know we love our coffee, and there's contentment in that. Maybe it's a job well done. We just spent some time in the garden. I thought I'd never say that, but spent some time in the garden. Afterwards, you sit down, and and you look at what you've done. There's some contentment in that. Many of us have some experience of contentment. I reckon lots of us, though, have a lot of experience with the opposite, with discontentment. And in some ways, I reckon discontentment's not such a bad thing particularly when it can lead us to seek true contentment. You see, many people come to faith when they experience discontentment with this life, when they experience the meaninglessness of a cold and impersonal universe without God. That can lead us toward contentment. That's not such a bad thing, isn't it? That was my experience as a teenager. Uh, The life we were pursuing, my friends and I, the, the sort of foolish young folk, I might call them now, call me now. The life that we were living didn't deliver in the way that I thought it would. We were all pretty discontent with how life was going, but we were pretending like it was the opposite. We were kind of pretending to be having the times of our lives when really the silly decisions we were doing were covering over the deeper cries of our heart. What we really wanted was to be seen, to be known, to be part of something bigger than ourselves. Contentment. I don't reckon any person in this room wouldn't want it. If I said there was a pill you could take right now and you could experience true contentment, I reckon every single one, yep, I'm up for that. Contentment. We experience fleeting moments of it, but if we're honest, we don't quite know how to cultivate it in our lives. What is lasting contentment? How do we experience it? So it's more than just fleeting. It's more than just momentary. It's more than a few minutes. How do we foster more of it in our lives? That's what I want to look at this morning. 
That's what we want to look at. We want to look at two questions. What is true contentment? and How do we get it? What is true contentment? And how do we get it? If you're listening during the Bible reading that Bridget read, Paul says, I've learned the ways of it. He goes deeper than that. The man who wrote this part of the Bible, he says, I know the secret to contentment. Well, I'm listening. Are you all ears? I'd like to know. Well, let's dive in. What is the secret to contentment? What is true contentment? How do we get more of it? I'm interested. Let's dive in. We've got only four verses. Verses 10, 11, 12, 13, 14. That four? Yeah, that'll be four. Uh, that, that we're looking at this morning. So you might think short passage, short sermon. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see how we go. <clears throat> but we're going to start at verse 10. And we're going to mine the depths of what God has for us here. Because we trust in his word to tell us the truth about who we are and how we can live and who our great Savior is. So, verse 10. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord at last, sorry, I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. Now, what is the context? What on earth is Paul talking about here? Well, it's this. As we know, Paul started this church, the Philippian church. It's in a place called Philippi. He started it 15 years ago. And at the very first week of our series, 10 weeks ago, we learned about what, how that happened. You can read about it in Acts chapter 16. It's a fantastic read. And we, we met the first three members of the church. The first is Lydia, a wealthy woman, a fashionista. She's sort of CEO of her own fashion empire. And then a slave girl. And then a, a, a jailer, probably an ex-soldier, a blue-collar worker. They're the first three members of the Philippian church. Paul knows them. He loves them. Other people have joined the church. He is their pastor, their leader, and he loves them dearly. And now he is writing this letter to them to encourage them. But he's there with these guys for a period of time. And then he goes to Corinth and to Athens to do the same. Now, the Philippian church says, Paul, are you going to do for those people what you did for us? We want to support you in that. And so they actually gave him money for a number of years to go and plant churches in other areas. They're really showing their maturity in Christ in doing that, giving their hard-earned to Paul to support him in gospel ministry. Now, as far as we can tell, after a number of years, their relationship petered out. So Paul's writing this probably 15 years after he planted the church. Are you with me? 15 years after he planted the church, he stays in touch with them maybe for five years as he plants the other churches, but then they lose contact. Now, you can figure out why, right? Paul has a crazy life. We're going to hear about a little of that in a little while. And it's the ancient world. It's pretty hard for correspondence to be kept up, right? So they lose touch for about 10 years. It wasn't so easy back then. Now, as we know from previous weeks, Paul is in jail writing this letter. It's been 10 years since he's heard from this Philippian church. They hear their brother, their pastor, the man they love is in jail. And they think, we want to do something about that. So they send a brother, Epaphroditus, with some cash to help him out. Because back then in the ancient world where you were imprisoned, Paul's imprisoned for preaching the gospel, not for doing anything wrong, but for doing what Christ wants him to do, preaching the gospel. He's imprisoned. Back then you had to come up with your own food, money, and board. How? I don't know how. People had to support you. And the Philippian church heard about this. Send a brother, Epaphroditus, with some money. And Paul is just incredibly grateful. He's moved to tears. We see it in verse 10, right? Paul's joy has been triggered by God's provision 
through other believers. And it's heartwarming, right? It's, it's beautifully encouraging. Now, I, I know I say this quite a lot here at Harborside Church, but encouragement is a massive part of life, church life and gospel ministry. But unfortunately, I think it is often very lacking. Our hope and prayer is that this, this culture of encouragement would be present here that we would be a church that encourages our brothers and sisters. It would be commonplace. That is our hope for this church. As many of you know, um, we spent some years overseas in the US. In the last two years we were there, we were part of a church plant. We lived in sort of the south, in the dirty south, they call it, in downtown Atlanta. We were part of this church called Kairos, which was really cool. And I wasn't there, I couldn't be there every week because of the, the commitments I had with the band. I was on the road. But the pastors loved us so much. They were beautiful, Thomas and Beth, and they really loved my wife and I very much. Uh, and they extended incredible encouragement and grace to us, particularly as we were a little bit, you know, not very frequent at the church. And I hadn't spoken to him for years. And then out of the blue, a couple of months ago, I got this message. Let me read it for you. Oh, it's not up the feet here. It's on my notes. Dave, hope that you and your family are well. Been praying for your church plant. I didn't talk to him about it. The wonders of the internets, I guess. Um, having walked that road, I know it can be the most exciting and terrifying journey in ministry. He really has planted a church. He knows what he's talking about. Anyway, I wanted you to know that last week I was in Cuba, as you do, doing some preaching and giving a lecture at a seminary there. Being in Cuba is like going back in time. You are cut off from cell phone and internet. After some adjustments, it's actually quite wonderful. I read more, prayed more, and listened to more music than in years. Of all the music I've downloaded, the Lord kept leading me to Blink. That's an album my band produced. I probably listened to the album 10 times last week. The music and lyrics ministered to me deeply. Thank you for the way God uses you. It makes more of an impact than you'll ever know. My love to Pip and your children, joyfully, Thomas. Now, I'm not saying that so you'll all go download that album. <laughs> And we'll get some royalties for that. No, no, not at all, not at all, not at all. Why am I sharing that? It's an example of incredible encouragement, isn't it? I mean, what a message to get. At that time, I needed to hear that. God used my brother, who I hadn't talked to in years. God used him to encourage me. Let me ask you a question. Would you take the time to write something like that to a brother or sister? See, this is what we get to do as the body of Christ. This is what we get to do as a little church here, Harborside Church right here. This is what we get to do being part of the bigger church of Christ all around the world. God works through us to bless each other. And it can look different. It can take many different forms. It can be a warm hug, a loving word, a tear shed in empathy, Money given in a hushed and kind of quiet, gracious way. An invitation to dinner or what we call a ministry of presence. Just being with someone when the stuff hits the fan. Just being there with someone. These are all beautiful ways that God provides. And Paul's experiencing that right now. God has put Paul on the minds of the Philippians and it's moved them to action. We all need to be reminded of God's goodness through each other. Let's keep going through this passage and really mind the depths of what Paul's saying, particularly regarding contentment. Let's have a look 
at verse 11 here. Excuse me. Verse 11. I'm not saying this, this is Paul again, I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learnt to be content whatever the circumstances. Now Paul's saying to the Philippians, I'm not bringing this up because you haven't supported me for 10 years. He's not giving them a guilt trip. We all know what that's like. We all know what it's like when people do put pressure on us. Paul is not doing that at all here. What is he saying? He's saying, thank you for the gift I've just received. He says something really mind-boggling here. In fact, the lack of support that I got, I didn't get support from anybody for a long time, the lack of support I got led me to learn the greatest thing one could ever learn. That is contentment in Christ and nothing else. Now, this word we talked about before, but content, has this sense of enough, satisfied, satiated, to have one's fill. Paul said, in the last little while, I have learned, figured out how to be happy, really a deeper happiness, a deeper joy, to be satisfied, whatever happens. Now, this is what I found fascinating preparing for this message this week. This idea that this is something Paul had to learn. I really want us to grasp this, the significance of this this morning. This meaning of contentment didn't come naturally to Paul. Did not come to, even as an apostle of Jesus. This is not something he brought from his background. He sat at the feet of one of the most famous rabbis in all of history. Didn't bring the idea of contentment from that. He had a five-star Jewish education, didn't bring it from there. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees, well-respected, very smart, didn't bring the idea of contentment from there. He learned contentment by being a disciple of Jesus, in the school of discipleship to Jesus. Now, this is something that we all need to learn, and I really think as followers of Jesus, we struggle to understand this, which leads to a lot of disappointment. The idea, this idea of contentment, it's not something we are necessarily zapped with upon our conversion. At the point of our conversion, we are changed forever. We are justified. Our position before God is instantly changed for all eternity. We no longer sit under the weight, guilt, debt of our sin that is paid for through Christ. We are transferred to another place because of what Jesus has done for us, our salvation secured. We are changed. The Bible says the old is gone, the new has come. Glorious. Absolutely a one-time deal, never to happen again in our lives, but that's the truth of the gospel. But applying the gospel to every facet of our life, that's a process. That's a journey. And learning the ways of contentment, it's not an instant thing. And we shouldn't be surprised by that. What else in our lives is, in, is instantaneous, that's worth getting. Think about learning a new language. How long can that take, particularly as an adult? Think about sports, academics, art, you name it, whatever it is. It takes time. Why should we expect to be instantly schooled in the ways of Jesus and contentment in him instantly? It doesn't work like that. It's a journey. Jesus invites us on as our great teacher. Here's the question for people this morning. Are we willing to learn? Now, this is hard. This is hard for us because of the air we breathe today in our culture, right? We want it all and we want it now. We are just looking for that life hack, 
aren't we? And that killer app, just because we want it instantaneously. What's it going to take for, for our lives to be right? What's the hack? But what we need is a path to walk, not a quick fix. When Paul says, I have learned to be content, what's he saying? He's saying, I'm calmly accepting my present lot in life. I'm calmly accepting my present lot in life. Now, what does that not mean? Paul doesn't mean he had no desires at all. He's not meaning that he didn't have more ambition for the gospel. And this man planted more churches and saw more of the world and preached the gospel more than all of us combined, right? This is not a passive statement. And many great Christian brothers and sisters have changed the world for the better, and we can too, for having a righteous discontentment with the status quo. Okay? That's not what's happening here. We are not passive people, but contentment here is more about the state of our hearts. Having a restfulness rather than a restlessness. Having peace rather than anxiety. It's saying this, I'm calmly accepting my present lot in life, my present circumstances, not because they're the result of random chance and happenings. If our present circumstances were a result of random chance and happenings, I reckon that would be cause for anxiety because there's no grand plan. But what we are saying is, no, that's not it. My current circumstances, we can trust. Why? Because our God is sovereign, which means he's in control. He is a loving father. He has divinely placed you where you are. That's part of my morning prayer every day. Lord, I trust you. You have divinely placed us here for your will and your glory. He works for our good, and he has a better plan for our lives than the script that we have in our head. That's what it means. Paul lived it, and he knows it. And I tell you what, it's so nice to hear from someone who has lived the full range of human experience. He knows. Paul came from a privileged life, persecuted Christians as a devout Jew, was then converted and experienced incredible suffering as he preached the gospel across the world. In 2 Corinthians 11, he gives us a little bit of a highlight. Let's read it. I think this is really helpful. This is Paul. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I've labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst. I've often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressures of my concern for all the churches. Not so much the highlights, more the lowlights. Sobering. This is Paul's experience. He's also known amazing highs in ministry, seen uncountable people come to Christ. He's also lived in relative prosperity, hung out with wealthy believers, known times of peace and prosperity. So when he says these words that we're about to read in verse 12, I'm listening. They carry some weight. He says this, I know what it is to be in need and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, 
whether living in plenty or in want. Paul says again here, he's learned. This is a different kind of learn. There is a difference between learning something intellectually and learning something through experience, isn't there? There's a big difference. And this is what Paul is talking about in his second instance here. He's come through the other side of these vastly up and down experiences and he's saying, I'm telling you, either way, contentment can be found in Christ and nowhere else. There is a difference between knowing something intellectually and experiencing something and knowing it that way. Uh, many of you know I'm a, a type 1 diabetic, excuse me, type 1 diabetic and have been for about 14 years. First got diagnosed and had to go to a, a diabetes education centre for about a week just to kind of learn what this disease was as a 23-year-old. And it's bizarre. You're learning things, you're, you're injecting insulin into oranges, and it's kind of a bizarre experience. And they have these people there who are wonderful. They're called diabetes educators. They know everything there is to know about the disease. They've counselled so many people, educated so many people. They know everything. They're nurses with this specialised uh, knowledge, and they're really fantastic. I found them incredibly helpful in those first kind of few weeks of figuring out what life would be like. I heard recently of a diabetes educator who had worked for a long time training people, teaching people about the disease, who then bizarrely developed the disease herself. Fluke. I mean, what are the odds of that happening? Particularly when you're older, it's, it's a rarer thing. She developed it herself. Now, can you imagine the difference going back to work, what that would be like for her? It's no longer imparting information from a book. Even the best diabetes educator, without the full knowledge of knowing what that's like, it's hard to relate. Can you imagine the difference of her going back to work now and answering a question, well, what do I do here? This has been my experience. This is absolute tangent, but this is what I love about the Christian faith. Jesus Christ enters into our story as a human and identifies with us. He knows what it's like to live the human life. He knows what it's like to struggle, to experience what it's like here. Jesus knows. And the same way Paul knows what it's like to struggle with this idea of contentment. He can relate. The experience goes from a theoretical one to a lived one. It's the same opportunity for us. I'm standing here this morning saying what? Contentment can be found in Christ. If you have Jesus, then you have all you'll ever need. Now, you can know that here. But then we go out and live in the world and we get to experience the truth of that. We get to put it to the test. And we ask you, have you experienced this truth in your life through God's provision? Have you experienced that truth that Christ is all we need? Or is it just up here in theory still? Have you rested in him for contentment? You know, many of us living here in, in Sydney, in Mossman, Australia, in this political climate, we're not going to have the same wide-ranging experience as Paul, unlikely. In verse 12, Paul gives us this ex wide-ranging experience, doesn't he? It, plenty and nothing, well-fed, hungry, empty wallet, full wallet, this is encapsulating all human experience, everything in between. For us here, we're probably skewed this way, aren't we? Of having more of a full wallet, more of a full belly. May not be all our circumstances, all our situations, but not many of us know what it's like to go without a meal, to go without food for a day, 
to go to our bank accounts and find nothing there, to have no options, to have not many, that might be some of our stories, might be part of our past. I don't know every single person you know, but most of us are going to struggle to try to come to terms with this idea of contentment in the midst of plenty, in the midst of prosperity. The truth is we've never had more of anything and everything in the history of the world in the West than any other generation. The problem is we've believed the lie that more and more and more is better and equals contentment. That's, I think, our struggle here. More and more and more is better and equals contentment. We think that's going to deliver contentment for us. Um, when we were living in the States and when I was part of that, a Christian rock band, believe it or not, we were invited to play festivals at theme parks and they were just a highlight. It was awesome. The, the Christian promoters would take over the theme park for the day and it was Christian day at the theme park. This is true. I'm not making this up. This is true. In fact, my, my in-laws who are here this morning visited us on one of these very days many years ago. At, you remember Australia's one land for the Aussie people live in Sydney. Those ver- versions of that in America, Six Flags, Bush Gardens, they'd take it over and all the Christian bands would play in the amphitheatres and everyone's walking around the theme park in these Christian t-shirts. You've got to be polite because everyone's a Christian. You can't push in, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> <clears throat> these were amazing, awesome days, but I haven't even told you the highlight yet. The highlight was arriving the first time. It's happened quite a few times for us. The first time we arrived, this is going to be a great day. There's this sort of college kid hanging around us. And we're like, hey, how you going, Chad? Whatever his name was, I can't remember. Um, he's like, I'm here, I'm here to take care of you today. And we're like, that's nice. It's very cool. And he's like, no, 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 no. I'm your guide for the day. We're like, okay, explain. What does that mean? I'm here to take you around the park all day. So he was. We did not wait in one queue all day. So the, the, the concerts at night, so we had all day in this amazing theme park. We could do whatever we want. We went to ride after ride after ride, waiting in no lines. Everyone's staring daggers at us as we sort of just go through. He's like, sir, would you like to go on that ride again? Yes, I would. <laughs> I mean, I tell you what, it was the best experience. We, I went on at least 30 adrenaline-pumping rides before our set, our, my desire for excitement was insatiable. I just went again and again. It was the, I felt like a little kid. It was the best fun. Problem was, half an hour before our set, I could barely stand up. I'd used every ounce of adrenaline that I had in my body. I needed three cups of coffee and a cold shower even just to get on stage because I was wiped. But why am I sharing that story? Because it's a great memory. I just wanted to share it. <laughs> I, just, I wish I was there. Why am I sharing it? I'm sharing it because to try and illustrate the fact that our desires are insatiable. We will always want more and more. Like, I see it in my kids. I see it in myself. I see it in that theme park. Again, again, I wanted more. I wanted more. My desire for excitement was bottomless. We'll never stop wanting more. The only path to true contentment is to fulfill our desires in something that has no limit. Everything else, we're going to hit bottom of it, discard and find something else. The only solution is to put our contentment, our hope, our trust, our desire in something that has no limit, that that Paul illustrated beautifully in his prayer this morning, and that is the creator of the universe, the author of all things, the author of our salvation. It's difficult 
Because our culture wants us to be discontent. In living in a material kind of world, our culture, every marketer knows that content people don't buy stuff. Now, I'm not slamming people who are marketing. It's okay. We're glad you're here. I'm sure you're still Christians. No, I'm kidding. But, <laughs> but right, it's content people don't buy stuff. Every ad, everything is, is geared around the idea to get discontent. So I, I will buy that and because it will deliver on what it promises. It doesn't, so we repeat the cycle. This is the truth of living in the air, the air that we breathe, the living in the world that we live in. Now, part of walking this path with Christ, I think, is gaining discernment, is learning what is a false promise, holding it out and going, what's it promising? Can it really deliver? I think part of the church's job, part of preachers' jobs is to pull back the curtain. You know the Wizard of Oz who's supposed to be this scary, almighty thing and at the end of the movie, the curtain comes back and it's just this pathetic little man doing it with the levers and the rods. And I think that's part of our job, just to graciously, kindly go, really, is that it? Just pull back the curtain. Is this, is this really going to deliver? That little man behind the curtain, pathetic. Part of our job is to show that prosperity, that material accumulation, that more and more and more, it's a poor source of contentment. It doesn't bring hope. It doesn't bring peace. It doesn't bring lasting restfulness. In fact, the symptoms of living that way is what we talked about last week. Anxiety, depression, because it's not working. If prosperity prosperity brought contentment, we'd be the happiest generation ever, but it doesn't, and we're not. Paul tells us, if we have Christ, we have all we'll ever need. And this is the secret of being content. Paul fleshes this out in the next verse. We're almost done here. I can do all this or all things through him who gives me strength. I reckon this is maybe one of the most famous verses in the Bible. I had it big on my wall after I became a Christian for many, many years. But I wonder if I was maybe taking it out of context a bit. I wanted this to mean God fulfill all the dreams that I have. What does it mean? What's the context? What have we been talking about this morning? Contentment, haven't we? What does it mean here? It means we can have true and lasting contentment in every situation. How? Through Christ who gives us strength. You see, we can experience this not because of the great resources we have within ourselves, but because of the great resources of God who freely gives them to us in Christ. This verse doesn't mean we can do anything. That I can fly. I can win anything. No, it doesn't, just doesn't mean that here, does it? It means this, which is better, that we can face anything and hold on to contentment and therefore joy because we have Jesus. The object of our faith, Jesus Christ, is the one who gives us the power to do everything God has called us to do. Now, I'm going to stop talking now. And what I'm going to do is, we're very interested at Harborside in where the rubber hits the road. This is a bit of, so what? What does this look like in everyday life? So we're going to hear from one of our own about his journey for contentment through pretty difficult circumstances. So I'd love to invite Sean Barnes up here. Can we give him some love, Harborside? 
G'day, mate. Hey, Dave. Good to see you, brother. Put it there. Thanks, mate. Nice to see you. Um, <laughs> yeah, do you want me to stand down here for the interview? Does that make you feel better? Yes, I, part of a, a prideful part of myself does very much, but no. Sean, thank you so much for agreeing to share with us this morning. Hi, welcome. As we all try to grapple with this concept of contentment in Christ, sometimes mm. it can feel very up here, but what does that really look like? Yeah. As we leave church this morning, what does this look like to have contentment? In Christ, it can feel removed from it every day. Now, many of us know you. You've been up front a bit at Harborside before. We know you are married to the awesome Ali. Indeed. We know yes. we, you are dad to the amazing little banjo, who's just over one. Is yep. That right? Yep. Ban- little... First time dad. Yeah, first time dad awesome. to a little human wrecking ball. That's, yeah. That's good. <laughs> and you're t- currently teaching at Rosewood College in the PDHPE department. Is yeah. that right? Fantastic. Yep. Now, clearly, you're a man mountain. You've been purpose-built for an athletic life, like me, really. (laughs) Athletics has been a major part of your life. Can you share a bit about your journey with that with us? Yeah, happily. Um, So, yeah, as as you pointed out, I'm quite tall. um, And I sort of found out, I guess, going back to uh, when I was in high school, that being tall is quite helpful from a perspective of running fast and jumping far. Um, And so, I guess, yeah, my first interaction with athletics was back in school. At the end of my sort of schooling career, I got uh, some really good results. I was sort of ranked as the number one schoolboy in the country in long jump and triple jump. And, um, yeah, some people sort of approached me and they're like, this is great. We think, you you know, who's your coach? And I was like, I don't have a coach. And they're (laughs) like, you know, you should train. And I'm like, sounds good. So, you know, kind of they introduced me to some people and... Um, so I started training and he was like, I think, you know, you should sort of really try and pursue this. And so I trained with him for, um, for a little bit, but, you know, I think my, my path at that stage, I was sort of, it wasn't something I'd always been like, oh, I really want to pursue this. And so um, my story sort of, you know, God took me, I moved down to Canberra for a bit, I studied outdoor rec and then ended up moving back to Sydney several years later to go back to uni. And um, at that time, I remember, um, you know, it was 2012, the Olympics run in London, and I remember watching them and sort of being like, oh, this is what my coach wanted to train me to, to sort of to do, and I sort of had this itch, and I was like, oh, I wonder if I've sort of still got it, you know, and so um, anyway, Ali encouraged me, and she's like, hey, why don't you get in contact with your coach again, like, just give him a call, and so I did, and he's like, yeah, look, like, the season's almost over, but come along, just have a crack, see where you're at, and then we can sort of look to where you go from there, so... So I did, I sort of turned up, kind of got back into training, which I just sort of, I loved, I've always loved being kind of, you know, like, yeah, having a physical outlet, and so that season, I sort of jumped back in um, through sort of good fortune, came third in the country, again, in triple jump, Um, so sort of, um, and was like, oh, this is pretty great, (laughs) and my coach was like, I reckon you can have a crack at trying to qualify for Rio, which was sort of in about a bit over 12 months' time. That was the Olympics. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah, so I sort of put my head down for kind of that 12, 18 months in the lead-up to that and sort of trained really, really hard. Obviously, it was a pretty short lead-in, but um, was still looking pretty good. And um, at the end of that season, again, sort of um, Olympic trials, like placed third again. Um, didn't, didn't quite jump the qualifier, and so didn't make it to Rio, but it was like, well, look, this was a short lead-in. There's two more years to Com Games. That might be a bit more of a realistic target. And so mm. we're like, okay, let's sort of... Let's double down, let's focus on that. Um, but unfortunately, two months after the Olympic trials, um, I was at training and we were sort of doing a drill and I kind of fell over and was like, oh, what was that? And had heard this big noise and that noise was my Achilles tendon rupturing. Um, 
not a great injury for anyone who's trying to pursue an athletic career. Um, and sort of at that stage, I think, you know, a few people probably wrote me off. Like, I think my physio was like, yeah, like sort of, you know, we'll try, but, you know, but I still know that I kind of had this burning desire to make it happen. Uh, and so sort of just kept training really, really hard. And 14 months after that, had sort of recovered back to beyond where I was pre-injury. Um, wow, amazing. I'd actually, as a process of injuring this leg, I, my coach was like, well, why don't we just change what leg you jump off? And I was like, okay, we'll try that. <laughs> Sounds great, yeah. Yeah, and um, technically it ended up being like a positive thing. So I was sort of jump, jumping further than where I was and my numbers were all looking really, really positive to... Oh, that's at 11.02, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we don't need to pray. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, no. We might not do that, but we'll just keep going if it's okay. That's mine, Pip. Yeah, no <laughs> We'll, we'll pray in a moment. We'll pray in a moment. Okay. Yeah, keep going, Sean. So, um, yeah, so I sort of made it back. My, my sort of, um, all my numbers at training and stuff were looking really, really good to qualify. Um, my coach was sort of really, like, you know, encouraged, um, encouraged and sort of he's like, I think we're, we're there. Mm -hmm. But then about eight weeks before, um, eight weeks before the trials, sort of just picked up this kind of little niggly injury that sort of then um, progressed into something more and... I guess long story short was that that essentially ruled me out of being able to, to qualify um, or try, attempt to try and qualify for, for the Com Games um, that year. And for me, like, obviously, like, you know, it's sort of been such a long lead in overcoming sort of my injury with the Achilles and stuff. And then I think there was sort of so much pressure at that point that I'd, you know, put on myself mm. to say, let's make this happen. Even though, like, you know, I sort of got this injury, maybe looking back, could I have sort of managed it a bit better, perhaps, but... At the time, that was sort of the, the pinprick in the balloon that just sort of, mm. you know, made the whole thing kind of explode a bit. So The massive sort of high and then low after this. Yeah. Where, where did that leave you emotionally and with your faith? Um, oh, yeah, like after that, I think, like I sort of said, I think um, I'd realised after, after that that, like I said, I'd sort of I'd put everything at that stage, you know, everything in my life was revolving around trying to make this dream happen, you know, like, I'd sort of, I'd go and I was working as a casual teacher, and, you know, I'd turn down work opportunities because, like, you know, I was like, no, training's my focus, so I'd, mm. I'd sort of work a full day, and then my day, I feel, for me, would sort of start when I'd leave work, you know, I'd leave work, go to training, I was sort of training six, six, seven days a week, mm. um, and everything in my life had just sort of revolved around trying to make that happen, you know, like, work, you know, sacrifices that Ali and I had made, we'd sort of you know, had discussions about holding off starting a family so that I could sort of, you know, have this focus to um, make this dream happen. And so I guess when that was taken away um, in that way, yeah, I think sort of I did, like, I imploded a little bit. Like, I sort of, I felt like I'd lost any sense of purpose that I'd had in, you know, what athletics had been providing for me. Uh, I'd really identified as an athlete. I sort of saw that it was something that my friends and my family kind of looked at me in that way, it was sort of where I felt that I could sort of be sort of different and sort of stand out amongst mm. amongst other people. It's sort of something that I wanted to live up to and really sort of enjoyed that pursuit. But, you know, obviously once that was removed, you know, yeah, I was, I was gutted. Like, you know, I sort of, I definitely at that stage, I went through a period of depression and, um, yeah, it was just really sort of apathetic towards a lot of things. I didn't really know, you know, what was going to be next or... Mm. where to go, where to turn. And I don't think, while at the stage I didn't ever sort of doubt my faith, I definitely sort of was questioning God's plan and kind of being, you know, like, yeah, I, I didn't really know where to turn next kind of mm. thing, right? So, Wow, thank you for being so honest with us, Sean. It's incredibly helpful. 
where to from there? Where, how did you, we've talked a lot about this, how did you, through that, you, you know Christ is all you need, but then when yeah. you get into a situation like that, mm. you've really got to put that into practice. How did you learn that Christ is truly all we'll need? Yeah, um, well, you know, you, you sort of, um, at that stage, like I said, was sort of just unreal kind of feeling rock bottom, like didn't really know sort of where to turn and um, some friends had encouraged me to kind of like maybe go get some professional help, like, hey, I think you should chat with someone and um, eventually, like, it sort of, it took me having like a panic attack at work to kind of be like, oh, okay, I probably should go and chat with someone um, and I did, I sort of, I did, I sort of got in contact or got put in contact with a sports psychologist and um, sort of, you know, by God's good blessing, the very first time I met with him um, in our first conversations, I found out that he was also a Christian, which was sort of massive in helping me kind of process this whole thing because, you know, he obviously understood things from a Christian perspective, mm. all these questions about purpose and identity he could very much speak to from that angle that I don't think, you know, someone without that background would have understood. Um, in fact, I remember the first time I, I booked in with him, I sort of, I actually booked like two sessions, like, back-to-back, back, you know, and uh, he called me up, he's like, oh, hi, Sean, I think you've accidentally double-booked, and I was like, no, no, I've got, like, lots to talk about. Like, you know, <laughs> you're going to, are you going to need you're this? You're going to need this double session, and he's like, that's... Cancel your day. Yeah, 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 yeah literally, because, yeah. you know, uh, and he was like, that's not how this works, like, you know, <laughs> we're going to chat, you're going to go away, you're going to think about it, then you can come back again, and I was like, I need to talk about all this now, like, you know. <laughs> sure, <laughs> you know? wow. Yeah. So, um, but, um, you know, that sort of opened a dialogue that we could begin to kind of process, I think, what was behind, you know, this idea of purpose and identity. Um, I think this concept of pride that, you know, I'd sort of developed around who it was that I wanted to be as an athlete, what I wanted to prove. Um, but for me, I think there was a real turning point. Um, it was like a single... It was one day um, where I'd sort of had this session with this guy, Paul, and um, he'd sort of reminded me, like, we'd been talking about this idea of pride and... I remember the words that he said to me was that, Sean, God doesn't care whether or not you're standing on the podium at the Olympics or just mucking around in the backyard with your kid. He loves you just the same, you know. He doesn't, it doesn't matter what it is that you've done or accomplished. He's like, you're all on level pegging. Um, and for me, that was like, oh, okay, like, you know, I'm there loving God and loving those around me. You know, it was sort of... He pointed me back to that verse in, um, in Mark 1 where it says, you know, God talking to Christ and he says, you are my son whom I love, with you I'm well pleased. And, you know, being nothing more than that, just a child of God, that's, sort of, that's all we needed. And for me that was really, really big. And then sort of added to that on the drive home from that session, I'd had a mate who sent me a podcast about six weeks before that being like, hey, I reckon you should listen to this. And I was like, okay, sure, whatever hadn't listened to it, but it was that day that I sort of chose to listen to it. And in that podcast, um, in that sermon, sorry, um, there was an illustration that sort of used the idea of our, our lives as this sort of play um, and sort of how so often we try and, you know, as, a, as a, you know, a member of this play, we try and put ourselves, our lives, as like the main focal point. We sort of try and take that spotlight. Main um, character. Exactly right. Yeah. We sort of put ourselves right there, front and centre, like, you know, sort of get out of my way, here I am. Um, and when we do that, though, sort of the story that our lives take, um, if, you know, that turns sour, can kind of make the whole thing look like a tragedy, right? It's sort of like, you know, the words that you were saying before about, you know, Paul's like, I've been flogged, I've been stoned. It's like, if you read that and that's sort of what the story's about, you're like, wow, that's pretty depressing. That's like, a rough story. <laughs> you know, yeah. yeah, it's horrible. 
But instead, this sort of this sermon illustrated that if we actually place ourselves in our rightful position as a supporting member of the cast, our story, be it of hope or you know despair or whatever, actually supports you know the story of the main character, which is Christ. Uh, and if He's there, front and centre, with the spotlight shining on Him, our story can just sort of shine and shed more light on that, and sort of in that, you know, the success and triumph that He's had. Um, you know, we can be supportive of through our own sort of story. And so I think the combination of those two things for me, you know, that idea of, well, it doesn't matter what you do and that you should stop trying to be in the spotlight and put Mm. Christ back there instead. Um, For me, that sort of enabled me to find that contentment in just being who I was, Sean, a son of God, a husband, you know, a father to be at that stage, like... And I didn't need anything more than that to sort of to have that. And in that, I was able to sort of begin to find joy again, you know. Just, I could, you know, I'd turn up to work and rather than being like, I don't know what I'm doing here, I could be like, you know what, today I'm just going to, you know, love those around me. And if I do that, God's going to be happy with that. Um, and, yeah, interesting, like sort of out of that, once I'd sort of, you know, reached that point, you know, I'd sort of, been at, uh, still been casual teaching, not knowing where I'd want, and sort of, I think God was like, well, you know what, you've learned that lesson, and then opened this door at sort of Roseville, you know, he's like, mm. oh, okay, good, Sean, and here's the next door, sort of, you know, kind of thing, and so, yeah, so I think that's sort of definitely been um, where I've been at, I think, for the last sort of 18 months now, just, you know, trying to be constantly reminded that it's not what I do, you know, like you said, it's sort of, it's through him, right, mm. it's not, yeah. Brother, thank you so much for sharing. I'm so encouraged hearing that story again. So thank you very much. Can we thank our brother, Sean?